WFMU is doing a silent fundraiser. It's the 31 Days of October campaign. There's a donate widget at the top of the TMI page. Please donate and support quality radio programming. There is nothing more futile or depressing than a future of journalism conference. And I'm embarrassed by the number of these boondoggles I've attended over the years. Perhaps I'm just a sucker for catered lunches and free cocktails. Perhaps I have a pathetic and totally unrealistic subconscious belief that I'll meet a program officer from a wealthy foundation or a government agency sick and tired of doling out money to people making apps and widgets and online interactive news games. Someone who's come to one of these conferences ready to invest serious money in podcasting. Or perhaps it's just the simple thrill of being invited to a Future of Journalism conference in the first place. I mean, I'm not even a journalist. But a couple of months ago, I attended this Future of Journalism conference at the New School, and I saw something that changed my life. The conference is called New School versus Old School. And for the opening panel, they've somehow booked both Jason Blair and Judith Miller for a conversation about truth, lies, and the destruction of the New York Times. Jason Blair was the African-American New York Times reporter famously outed by the paper on May 11, 2003 for making up quotes and fabricating sources. Much of his reporting, it turned out, was done not in the field, but rather from his Brooklyn apartment. Today, Jason Blair is a motivational life coach, and he walks on stage exuding calm and serenity. Judith Miller, on the other hand, storms the stage like a Napoleonic pit bull, but she now works at Fox News, so she's got about as much juice as an electric bug zapper. Judith Miller resigned from the New York Times in disgrace on Wednesday, November 9, 2005. But many of her questionable stories about Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction were composed in 2002 and 2003. So basically, they were contemporaries, comrades in lies. And the moderator, a young female professor from the New School's creative writing program, reminds us of this in her introduction. And then she asked both of them to address the ways in which they see their stories intersecting and overlapping. Jason Blair starts. On May 1st, 2003, George Bush gave his mission accomplished speech on the deck of the USS Abraham Lincoln. With hindsight, we now know that this was an extremely cynical and dishonest speech. And even though a majority of Americans were willing to buy this story, there were a lot of questions lurking just below the surface. And for the New York Times, he says, looking over at Judith Miller, this was a serious moment of crisis. How do we report the mission accomplished story without addressing all the pieces we did about the weapons of mass destruction, the front page scoops about yellow cake and uranium tubes, stories the administration used to make its case for war? This is why I was sacrificed on May 11th. Something had to give. I'm not saying what I did was right. I was making stuff up. But the outrage, the vitriol, this had nothing to do with me. I was just the punching bag. There's a moment of uncomfortable silence. And then Judith Miller lets loose. It's true, she says. Our stories do intersect. But Jason Blair is clearly still unable to grasp the facts. His lies brought the New York Times to its knees. And in this climate, all of us were viewed with mistrust and suspicion. The public demanded a sacrifice, and I was the one they got. Jason Blair was not sacrificed. He was fired. There is only one scapegoat here, and that is me. Don't forget, I went to jail. I went to jail because I was willing to stand up for journalistic integrity. The moderator's at a loss for words. 
I don't think she realized things would get so tense so fast. The silence is deafening. But then, this guy sitting next to me stands up and asks a question. All morning I've been trying to place him. He looks really familiar. But when he opens his mouth, I realize I only know him from reading his articles and listening to his radio appearances. It's the science journalist, Jonah Lair. This is a few weeks before he gets busted for fabricating Bob Dylan quotes and fired from the New Yorker. So his question is kind of prescient. Can you both talk about how you view the world when you get past the bitterness and the recriminations, he asks. Obviously, you're both traumatized by what happened to you at the New York Times, but you both moved on. And in a way, you two are like experts at living in a world that is defined both by truth and untruth. And I would love to hear your thoughts about what it's like to live in this world. Somehow, this insane question totally changes the atmosphere. Judith Miller and Jason Blair, they begin to talk to each other and not at each other. They even smile and laugh. Jason tells Judith about his life coaching and his ambitions to work with athletes who've been caught doping, like Lance Armstrong. Judith tells Jason all about the erotic screenplay she wrote while she was in prison. Actually, I don't remember much of the conversation after this because I am struck by a mad idea. What if I can get Blair and Miller together for a TV show? A sort of American Idol-like program? A reality show about truth and fiction? I cannot shake this idea. It's all I can think about for days. And when Jonah Lair gets fired from making stuff up, I spring into action. I meet with a string of executives from all the major networks. I meet with a hedge fund and an entertainment management company. I pull together a production team. I meet with Judith Miller and Jason Blair and Jonah Lair, and I get all three of them to sign on. This is why there have been so few new Too Much Information episodes. I've not been slacking, dear listener. I've been out there working my ass off trying to make something real happen. But last week, we were told we weren't getting the green light for the pilot. Apparently, market research suggests that America just isn't ready for a reality show about truth. For as long as I can remember, I've been interested in the fake and the unreal. But what I'm really obsessed with is when fake things somehow cross over to the other side and become real. A good example of this, a fake thing becoming real, is the story of white bread. According to the writer and food historian Aaron Barbara Strain, white bread becomes real in the 1920s. Actually, he's got it down to the day. Well, well, let's say July 7, 1928, which is the, uh, the, the, the day when sliced bread is invented by a kind of down-on-his-luck uh, inventor uh, and a, an almost bankrupt bakery owner in Chillicothe, Missouri. And, you know, we have that saying, the best thing since sliced bread, and it, it, really, it really is true. In that moment, sliced bread exploded all over the country extremely rapidly. And that invention, um, for me, the invention of perfectly uniform, perfectly sliced factory bread is the pinnacle of white bread's symbolism as a shining edible vision of progress and the future. And just to give you a sense of that, in 1890, uh, pretty much 90% of all bread in the United States was baked in homes by women. But by 1930, that number had completely flipped. Um, only 10% uh, of American bread was baked in homes, and 90% was baked um, outside the home, not by mothers, but now by men in increasingly large and increasingly distant 
factories. So it's a very quick and dramatic change between 1910 and 1930, roughly. Aaron Bobro Strain is the author of the book White Bread, A Social History of the Store-Bought Loaf. Bread, he tells us, was one of the most difficult food products to industrialize. Bread is a living, unruly product of microorganisms and time. So baking engineers and chemists and all kinds of bake shop scientists had to, had to really work on how we could shoehorn the living loaf onto the assembly line. While the invention of sliced bread may be the watershed moment, Without good old-fashioned American xenophobia and racism, white bread might have been just another short-lived fad, like the bob or the foxtrot. What makes industrial white bread explode the way it does is an odd phenomenon in the early 10s, 20s. uh, I call a moral panic over bread. And what we see is that middle and upper class white native-born Americans during that period go through this kind of freak out about the safety of their bread. And you see newspaper headlines during this time screaming, dangerous bread threatens the city and germs menace your, your loaf, things like that. And every city was holding major hearings on on the bread question and what to do about bread safety. And there was this fear that bread was carrying typhus and other diseases. But what I found really puzzling is the more and more I looked at this, I couldn't find any evidence that anyone was actually getting sick from bread. Uh, Other foods in the American diet, uh, milk, meat at that moment were in fact, quite dangerous uh, as a result of the industrialization of the food system. If you can think of uh, Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, on the meatpacking industry, uh, meat was dangerous. Uh, But bread seemed to be relatively safe. So what was going on? And when I started to look into it and started reading the hearings, uh, transcripts of hearings, what what I started to realize was that it had become uh, impossible in in native-born middle and upper-class whites minds to separate fears about bread safety from their fears about immigration, particularly the new southern and eastern European immigrants whose supposedly dirty and uh, diseased hands were, were touching bread. And industrial bakers grasped this immediately, understood this perfectly, and started selling industrial bread as bread that was untouched by human hands. It was a shining white clean, modern marvel um, that was the antithesis of that scary, supposedly dirty and diseased um, product of immigration. By the mid-1950s, white bread had become a defining staple of American diet and culture. Americans were eating about a pound and a half of white bread per person per week. Everyone may have been eating white bread, but many, many Americans had questions. There's this uh, project in the 1950s in Rockford, Illinois, where the uh, U.S. government creates what I call the Manhattan Project of Baking, which was this massive multi-year effort to use all these different scientific research tools to completely understand Americans' bread habits, and then out of that create the perfect loaf of white bread. And out of that, we learn a lot. And one thing we learn is that people, yes, they completely bought into the idea that this was a strong, powerful food, that it would make your children smart and tough. But at the same time, they don't necessarily like the taste of it. Um, there's all kinds of, uh, of people dissatisfied with the taste and texture of, of industrial white bread, but yet they still keep buying it. Today, white bread's really only real at a white trash party. Wheat bread is now the top-selling loaf. But according to Aaron Bobro Strain, this fall from grace, the move from real to fake, is the most important chapter of the white bread story. Uh, White bread is not as crucial a a symbol today as it was 50, 60, 80 years ago. Uh, But I think that white bread still is an icon, um, and what it's become an icon of is, I think, a kind of lower-class, poor consumption that is unwise, unhealthy, unreal. And that cultural and economic shift 
um, for me, takes place uh, in the arc between hippie and yuppie, between mid-60s and mid-1980s. Um, and it's, we see, in that moment, industrial white bread goes from being an icon of progress and responsible parenting and patriotism um, to being an emblem of poverty, um, ill health, and poor choices. I was at the grocery store the, uh, towards the beginning of the project um, and picking up a loaf of industrial white bread to check out the ingredient label. label. I was going to try to figure out what some of these different chemicals additives were and what why they were there. Um, and as I'm checking out, um, uh, there's a student of mine in the line, a food politics student of mine in the line, and he looks at me and he looks down at the bread. And he just gives, he doesn't say anything. He gives me this look like I was buying meth. A key point that I keep coming back to is that this shift, this cultural shift from industrial white bread uh, being an icon of progress and responsibility to being an icon of white trash um, is not just about taste or health. Um, if we look at that same period from the 60s to the 80s, that's a moment where we see um, the, the growth of enormous economic and social disparities in our economy. And what I find is that the gulf between, the widening gulf between people who eat quote unquote good food and people who eat quote unquote bad food um, is really inseparable from that rising tide of inequality in the United States. Um, our enormous economic and social disparities are simply reflected on our stratified niche market food economy. I think as a food historian, when we, when we look back at what we call our obesity epidemic today, say we look back at that in 20 years, I think what we'll realize is that actually we had a problem with poverty, inequality, declining real wages for most Americans, um, gentrification problems and the displacement of, of poor folks from, from city life. Things like that will, will actually appear to be what was really going on. Uh, and we were calling it obesity epidemic. We were focusing on the individual food choices, but actually there was, there was much more going on. And the problem is that a lot of food activism today, it revolves around the idea that if you only knew what I know about your food, how fake it is, how bad it is, you would change your ways. Um, and I think that that, and it's the sense that people haven't changed the way they eat because they're uneducated or they're duped and they don't understand how fake and bad their food is. And I think that that really does a disservice to two things. One, it does a disservice to the complex relationship we have to our food. Um, it's not so simple uh, that I can just stand up there and say, if you only knew what I, the expert, know. Um, and the other thing is that focusing on individual food choice like that uh, almost always misses the, the kind of underlying structural reasons why our food system is the way it is and why people eat the way they do. spend a lot of time in Vermont in the summers and the only place where I am in Vermont where you could buy like a inexpensive yet marginally fashion forward clothing especially if you're a woman is Walmart. The artist Zoe Sheehan Saldana was in a Walmart, a small town Walmart in Vermont when she had her big breakthrough idea about real fake. I was thinking that it would be awesome if my work was in, you know, on display, and I thought, well, the easiest way to get your work on display is to just put it on display so I can make my work and show it in Walmart, and maybe nobody even knows that it's there, but is that so different than what I'm doing right now as, you know, an artist anyway? Like, a lot of times I make something, and 
put it in a gallery and nobody knows it's there anyway. So like, why not do that in Walmart? So I buy several pieces of clothing. I took them back to the, my studio where I was working and I tried to recreate them, tried to create them from material that I could buy in a store. I duplicated the pattern of the clothing and then tried to get matching fabrics and um, create the pieces. You can see photos of some of the pieces Zoe made for her shop-dropping project, dresses, skirts, jeans, on her website. She has no idea, though, what happened to the actual pieces themselves. Those went back on the racks at Walmart. I was trying to get my piece done quickly enough to get it back in there before inventory changed also. So there were some time limits that I set for myself. Like I didn't, um, how do I say this? If it wasn't exactly perfect, I was okay with that. It just had to be good enough to pass and to be structurally solid so that anybody who bought it wouldn't have it fall apart on them. And what I came to find also was that not every garment in a run of garments at Walmart is the same. There are many slight variations among them. So I didn't feel like um, I had to be exact. Yeah, it's not a fake. It depends just on how, no, it's, it's not a fake. how you look at it. It's not. You're not, th- you're not calling it a fake. No, it's a, it's a duplicate or, or a not. It's like a real fake. I mean, most fakes are real. I think in the fashion terminology, they might call them knockoffs. Um, and then maybe in like a photographic terminology, you might call it a reproduction. Um, and then is the reproduction itself an original or is the knockoff its own original? You know, this is something for philosophers. Zoe Sheehan Saldana stopped shop dropping a few years ago, but she's still making things. When I visited her studio in Williamsburg, she showed me a carpet she's working on, made out of Vermont sheep wool, and she showed me her matches. She makes the kind of matches you get at the hardware store, and she makes them from scratch. Actually, I have all the components in a box over here. You want to see them? Isn't that pretty? One of these has wax. You need wax. You need some water and gelatin. And also you need an abrasive. So I use ground glass as an abrasive. And if you want color, then you need pigment. Once I made one match, it was easy enough to make 250. Um, And then what I wanted to do with that was make it available for sale in the gallery context at a price point that was low for art, but maybe a little bit elevated for a match. She sells these for 20 bucks a piece. It's affordable art. It's an expensive match. There's lots of writers, artists, and filmmakers who now work at the intersection of the real and the unreal. But what I love about Zoe Sheehan Saldana's project is the unique way she's able to fuse the two together. She is a true artisan of the real fake. For me, I I studied photography um, in graduate school, and photography is very much a part of a lot of what I do. I'm interested in photography in the way that images and objects become confused. Um, You see a photograph and it's a picture of something, I mean, generally. And we have a kind of confusion of the picture of something for the something that it's a picture of. And at the same time, the picture is itself an object. So this kind of confusion has always been interesting to me. And in making the matches, I found that I could merge the image and the object together. So it was both.
Asia, specifically China, skin whitening is a sign of social status. The lighter your skin, the higher your social status. And there's a very successful skin whitening product brand in China that uh, its owner is interested in selling and marketing in the United States. They came to me uh, looking for help with brand strategy and the semiotics of skin whitening. And I had to break the news to them that in the United States, uh, facial skin whitening for the purpose of making your uh, skin more Anglo in appearance than it is naturally is no longer an aspirational thing to do. In fact, if anything, it's seen as a shameful legacy of uh, slavery and colonialism. If anything, I told them, Anglo-American women in particular want their facial skin to be darker. Uh, they'd like to be gen like Jennifer Lopez's skin tone is the ideal skin tone. So this is why Mitt Romney like spray tanned himself before going on to Univision. I pointed out I pointed out the Mitt Romney thing to them, and I said this is where this is where we're heading. But wh why would you tell them this? Are you trying to discourage them from hiring you to do some work? No, I just want to set the, the framework and the context properly so that I can do what I do best. Um, so I needed them to understand the cultural context in the U.S. of skin whitening. You can find skin whitening products at the dollar store. It's not that I couldn't have given them some kind of report on that, but I wanted to give them, I, I really wanted to dive deeply into this very interesting phenomenon. So I spent the last two weeks studying the semiotics skin consistency, clarity, and radiance in U.S. culture and advertising. And my client just flew in yesterday from China and I debriefed them. So first I tell them, um, having looked at the category and kind of deconstructed the codes of the category, the skin consistency and clarity and radiance category, I then tell them what the trajectory of the codes are from residual codes, meaning codes that are, feel stale and they're no longer convincing to U.S. consumers, to dominant codes, which is the sort of thing that's on the top of everyone's mind right now. And if, if you assembled a, a focus group, this is the kind of codes that they would be able to give you. And then the emergent codes, which are the edgy codes, the, newish, the newer codes. You can get the dominant codes by doing focus groups and surveys and, and anthropologists going into your home and doing that kind of research. But if you're, if you're trying to look ahead and get ahead of the game, you need me. So I told them that the residual codes of the category or what I would call coding around extreme measures. So this is skin bleaching. This is miraculous, magical, science fiction-like solutions to the problem of uh, your skin being not as clear or radiant or let's face it, white as you'd like it to be. Dominant in the category, it's more about correcting reality, targeting specific problems. So for example, uh, women are concerned with how to multitask gracefully, how to break through malaise, how to um, escape from contemporary life, how to retreat from an unhealthy lifestyle. So these are like real-world problems that don't have anything to do with your skin, but they're connected to your skin through the communications around correcting reality. So the skin correction becomes a metaphor for correcting problems in your life, very specific problems. The client was furrowing his brow at this point, and he finally said to me, in China, the problem that we have is not being white enough. That is the real world problem that we have. I don't really get what you're talking about, this, these metaphors uh, of skin whitening as some kind of metaphor for a real some other kind of problem in your life. Then he, my client tells me, well, now he said, in Asia, and especially in China, uh, the urban middle class is very ashamed of its communist and rural past. And spots on the skin are often seen as a metaphor for attacking agents that need to be eradicated as, as part of the battle of civilized progress against the natural forces of reaction. And I said, yeah, we have something like that in the U.S. Uh, in the U.S., however, spots can often be viewed as charming, for example, on an egg or on a dog. But that doesn't mean we have to live with them. So, for example, in clinic, clinical dark spot corrector communications, they often will show a speckled egg and they'll show a clear egg next to it. Maybe a white egg, maybe a brown egg. They're not saying that Clinique is being very careful to say that being white is better than being dark-skinned. But they are saying just because spots are natural doesn't mean we have to live with it. It's a woman's right to privilege aesthetics over nature here in the U.S. So now that we've found some common ground, I moved us on into the emergent codes. Uh, for example, in Asia, 
Whiteness can be as much an attitude as it is a color. It can signify a relaxed life of mobile leisure aboard yachts and in upscale hotels. And do we have something like that too? Yeah, we got that too. Um, we have sort of you know fashion Dior ads and so forth where women are wearing white suits and they're in these kind of white furniture. They actually kind of look a little bit like white furniture themselves. However, there's a very strong subtext in the U.S. that those are kept women. A woman who is immaculately coiffed whose white clothes are never stained and who is permanently in a kind of a lounging position, has the look of an expensive mistress whose owner likes her upholstery. Uh, and he wants it to be in perfect shape, just like the upholstery of his car, for example. So whiteness in the US is evidence that you've achieved sophistication, but perhaps at the price of your freedom or, or even your soul. And uh, a good example of that is Gwyneth Paltrow in the ad for Todd's handbags, where she kind of become, merges with the white couch. She's, She's wearing white clothes and her skin is white and her hair is super blonde and she has this white bag and she's laying on a white couch and she's just sort of become the white furniture herself. Or that, I'm sure you've seen that Dolce and Gabbana ad with the woman wearing a white shirt leaning on the prow of a white boat. Mm, no. A client hadn't seen it either, then, but I was able to pull it up on my, on my PowerPoint and convince him. He was very disturbed to think that, uh, that it meant that white, whiteness could mean being a kept woman different color schemes for that in China. And that made him very sad and kind of popped his bubble. And uh, he was sort of defeated and slumped over in his chair at that point. And he asked me, well, just tell me, what, what do I got to do? How do I sell my whitening products in America? So I closed my laptop. I gently took him by the hand, patted him on the shoulder with my other hand. And I say, look, the answer is paradigm shift. The road to translucent, radiant skin tone has to begin with seeing in a new way, revaluing your values. It's about prioritizing leisure over work. It's about prioritizing mobility over stability. It's about prioritizing drama and aesthetics over naturalness. It's about prioritizing the future over the present and the digital over the physical. Forget about the outside world being something that you're trying to communicate your inner self to via the medium of the skin. Instead, think of the outside world as being something that's there for you to actively transform and influence via the interface of the skin. Even though I'm making this up as I go along, I know that I'm right. But my client, well, it's a little bit over his head, all the things I'm saying. Very practical guy. So he reaches into his satchel and he pulls out a can of the product. And I can't read the label because it's in Chinese, but I'm pretty sure it's the one that, that they call big money white. And he says, how do I sell this in America? What do I got to call this stuff? And off the top of my head, in a splash of inspiration, I said, I want you to call this smart white. My name is Jonah Freeman. We are at um, uh, our exhibition, Straight Light Gray. At Marlborough Chelsea, and I'm Justin Lowe. And what are we about to, to, to do here? Well, we, we are at currently in the first room of the exhibition, which is a contemporary art gallery, which has um, <clears throat> paintings of our own creation. The, the loose background for the show is this idea of a parallel city called the San San International. Okay, you don't really need to know the backstory to appreciate the latest Freeman and Lowe installation. Like all their work, Stray Light Gray is a multi-layered, multiple-room, mind-blowing experience. All you really need to know is that there is an open door at the back of this unassuming-looking gallery, and you need to walk through this door. And through the fake closet, and through the fake bathroom, through the second fake bathroom, and then you need to climb through the fake hole in the wall and into the fake hallway. And at this point, 
You should be good to go. That seems like there's some actual physical activity. Ah, you do have the handrail. There we go. Yes, <laughs> we think of everything. Yeah. In a way, Stray Light Gray is kind of like a haunted house. Minus people jumping out of boxes trying to scare you. But you do climb stairs and crawl through passages and the rooms get stranger and stranger. There's a plastic surgery clinic, a bodega filled with airbrushed cakes and strange skin products, a fossilized computer room, and an OTB with a video screen playing... Uh, just describe me what I'm looking at here. <laughs> Ronald McDonald having sex with the Colonel from KFC. Grimace in the background. And then we have these weird um, things that were, I don't know, like we've got, for some reason we have golf balls on there or someone with a hula hoop. There's some other kind of collage element on top of it all. It's like, you know, commerce and sports, and it was sort of all supposed to be about money. Like we're sort of monetizing the situation. I met up with Jonah and Justin because I wanted to talk to them about the last room in their new show, a wood-paneled library filled with bookshelves. Walking into this room is like walking into another world because none of the books are familiar. They all have strange covers and are written by people you've never heard of. In fact, the only thing to grab onto is the book with Stray Light Gray, the name of the show, on the cover. Yeah, we're not afraid to um, reference ourselves in here at all. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think, you know, there's, since we're always kind of having these fictional narratives that back things up in a bit, and there was some idea that this potentially Stray Light Gray could be a book that we, we were, you know, articulating the show through, and we actually used, for some of the promotional material, the book cover. I see. So the library first comes as, you know, very connected to the narrative with some of the characters and some of the ideas. Yeah, it helps to kind of articulate some of the kind of latent parts of, of what we're dealing with here. So, for instance, when we started to work together down um, on, the, on the Hello Meth Lab and the Sun piece, we were joking around that if this was a, a college class, it would be called Community Ritual and Psychosis. And so that becomes part of the Vorta science of behavior, where you get Spanish, Polish, Manish. Um, and then, you know, we have a lot of this sci-fi and um, you know, new age kind of uh, ideologies that are brought in, but in a, a kind of, I don't know, there's a bit of a, like a, a comedic twist to it. So for instance, you get something like Trade Your Clothes for Costumes by Xander. Well, we have Spiritual Prosthetics by Annabelle Vale, uh, Winter Mute Postures, The Natural History of the Supernatural Future by Carl Erhard, The Brutalist Gingerbread House by Elizabeth Stone, uh, I like this one, Fuck You, Buddy. You can't really see it. A but memoir. A <laughs> memoir, yeah, that's pretty good. Um, let's see here. I like uh, The Chopstick Fence, or t uh, Twilight of the High Class Philistine, or Honkies on Holiday, another personal favorite, by Martin Amos Presents. The cover, just describe the cover on that one. Oh, you have these kind of like, uh, I don't know, Westchester-looking like kind of spooked Aryans with these ghoulish hands that are peering out of a kind of a mist. <laughs> so can you talk about like just the physical process of, of making these? Like, how? Well, the, we, it's sort of like building an archive of our own like, ideas and narratives. So there's, we, there's a, a master list of potential book titles that have come from, you know, coming out of conversation, like Tanning Nude Dude, which was something my friend said in a conversation, or I know a gay mannequin when I see one, which is also... My <laughs> friend Sonia just sort of just came up with it. Like, she was just looking at something. She's like, I know a gay mannequin when I see one. <laughs> and that, that immediately became a book title, like, five minutes later. And became actually designed the book on the spot. Um, <laughs> So it, there's that process, and then we have an, an archive of imagery, which of found imagery that's thousands and thousands of images that we can kind of pull at whim for various things. And so the process becomes a sort of pairing of things and, and making this. And so I think we're always trying to oscillate between like the completely comical, uh, like French push-ups, Swedish sit-ups, Finnish finale, to like things that are, would seem more believable. Yeah, there's been a long process of making collages with books anyways, like just book covers, just cutting them up and putting them together. So it made a bunch of sense to take it here. 
And, you know, we're always listening to music, and so it's easy to just pull great titles, you know? Like, there's a lot of The Fall in here, yeah. like Paranoia Man in a Cheap Shit Room. Um, Slow Down Fuck Tomorrow is a Brian Jonestown Massacre song. I, I think what's really special about this room for me, too, is that I look around, I love finding weird books. I love finding, you know, books have always been sort of the doorway or the gateway to other worlds for me yeah. ever since I was a kid. And, you know, it's kind of bold, and then I can open up preteen huff job and see that actually this is not preteen huff job, and and, and there's a little bit of disappointment. But it seems that you know you could have wrapped these in plastic, you could have put them behind glass. But it seems that you there's a deliberate choice of letting people interact with, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if people open it up and see, no, right? You, no, not at all. You're welcome too. I mean, they're all. They're all amazing books on their own, you know. We're just sort of shifting the perceptions to what it actually is, you know. Yeah, but, but why did you allow the public to finger these and to sort of step through the illusion? Well, I think that, you know, when, when I first started doing this in my studio, I would make the fake book covers, and I would have them on my coffee table, and people would come in and look and be like, wow, what's this? And I'd watch them flip through, and... In, the, the moment and the period of time where it took them to realize that, like, what was going on was a really pleasurable thing. So I think it's like the experience of sort of saying, oh, preteen huff job, and then going in and being like, oh, this is just like an Andrew Wyeth book or something, <laughs> is, you know, I think that's, that's an experience that I, I like people to have. So sort of walking in and out of the fake yeah, and the real. Yeah, yeah. We don't, you know, I don't think we want to, like, maintain this, like, like, complete illusion, like, you know, there's, it's sort of, it's just about a shifting of perception. Yeah, the so, experience is yeah. stronger than that. Yeah. Um, you know, so. you know, when, you, when you talk about going in and out of that experience, it does, it also seems that the book does that better than it, you know, I mean, it really, really powerfully, immediately can, can do that. Yeah. And did you discover that uh, early on, you know, when, from that experience with your coffee table? Uh, a little bit, I don't know, I, I think we're not always aware of how this is going to go down. You know, but I think we're just doing things that we enjoy to do, and making these books is a lot of fun. And just the tactile experience of going through the books and looking at them and making them, I think it makes more sense for us to superimpose onto an existing book than it to be a complete fabrication at this point. Because um, I think, you know, the idea of the show is somebody this a parallel idea of the city, but it not it's not supposed to be completely other. It's supposed to be a sort of an uncanny experience of something you already know. And so I think the book is representative of that. Like it's just superimposed, it's slightly shifted. that I like to go after work. And I usually stop by every night, except Wednesday, because they have 10 cent wing night. It's wing night, I call it wing nut night, because every like homeless person, college student with just change in their pocket comes in there and it gets totally packed. And I just usually avoid it on Wednesdays. But this past Wednesday, I had to work late and I didn't get out of the office till just about nine. So it was the only place I could get to to watch the debate. There's one spot at the bar that's next to this guy. He's, you know, looks like kind of a Vietnam vet kind of guy. He's got like these two mountains in front of him. One is a mountain of change and another one is a mountain of chicken bones. But he's right in front of the TV and I wanna watch the debate. So I sit down next to him and order a beer, and the debate starts. I, I gave up after 10 minutes. I, I can't believe you even bothered. 
I, I did want to see if Romney would be wearing one of those secret transmitters like Bush wore during his debate with Kerry in 2004. And for a second, it looked like there was something going on with his flag pin, you know, and had this weird dark spot on it. But but it turned out to be, you know, as you know, just uh, 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 it was a pin that the Secret Service gave him. So it's like a flag with a star on it. I, I know that's what everybody's saying, but no, that's not what that was. What do you mean? I have some of those pins with the Secret Service star on it. They they even make beach towels and stuff like that. You can get them at the Secret Service gift shop. But that wasn't the star. It's a horse. What? What you thought was a star was really a hologram of a galloping white horse. That's why it looked blurry sometimes. You know how a star has five points? Well... The horse has a head and four legs, and it's a hologram, so it was kind of blurry. It looked like a five-pointed star, but it was actually a horse. Why would Romney have a galloping hologram of a white horse on his flag pin? Obviously, you haven't heard about the white horse prophecy. The white horse prophecy goes back to Joseph Smith. The con man who founded the Mormon. Yes. Around 1840, Joseph Smith realized that the United States government wasn't going to lift a finger to help him and his followers. He considered this an abandonment by a false government of the real true patriots and descendants of the founding fathers. So, so the Mormons are the, are the real Americans? According to Smith, yes. But furthermore, he said that one day in the future, the Constitution would hang by a thread. But that a great Mormon leader would ride in on a white horse and save the country. You're saying Romney sees himself as riding the white horse to save America? Yeah. And if you know about the white horse prophecy, then you would have caught Romney using certain code words during the debate. Like, for example, when he referred to deficits, he's telling them, I'm riding in on the white horse here because we have a moral issue. We have a crisis. And going back to the Constitution hanging by a thread idea. That's what he was saying. Okay. Another example of code words was when he talked about getting rid of PBS. Yes, he said he would fire Big Bird. Now listen to what he said exactly. He said, we need to cut funding for PBS. And then he said, now I like Big Bird. That was a coded reference to a Mormon story of the miracle of the birds. When the Mormons first arrived in Utah, their crops were getting attacked by insects. And the birds flew in and ate the insects and saved their crops. And this is a miracle of the bird story. So these were like, what, magic birds from the planet Kaloob? No, they were just big birds. Okay, so maybe he's, you know, throwing down some secret Mormon messages in his talking points, but is anyone picking up on them? Yeah, believe it or not, when Romney says that thing about Big Bird, the guy sitting next to me snapped to attention, and he shouted out, The Mormons are the chosen people. And the time is now for a Mormon leader to usher in the second coming of Christ and install the political kingdom of God in Washington, D.C. So this guy with the mountains of spare change and chicken bones is a Mormon. Ex-Mormon. He tells me he's been out of the church for years because, well, he got addicted to heroin. And then he realized there were way too many similarities between Mormons and junkies. Huh. You know, this guy sounds maybe a little crazy. Yeah, I know. But the craziest thing this guy says is, he points up at the TV and he says, that guy is on the nod. Wait, who? Obama. He says, Obama is on the nod. Wait, I'm confused. He, he's telling you that Obama is on heroin? Right. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure right after his anniversary dinner with Michelle, you know, he shot up some heroin and came to the debate. That makes sense. 
And he says, no, no, no. I'm not saying he shot the heroin. But look, I told you, not only am I an ex-Mormon, I'm also an ex-junkie. So I'm very familiar with the secrets of the white horse handshake. Huh. He says, there are some instances in the past where Mormons have used heroin to kind of soften up prospective converts. Back in 1968, in France, some Mormon missionaries supposedly started taking advantage of the drug culture. And one of them found a way to transfer some heroin to someone via handshake. So when the Mormons would go to the door and say, hi, we're from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and shake their hand, there'd be just enough drug that would get into the prospective convert that they would kind of soften up and relax and be willing to listen to them. Okay, please tell me right now that you don't believe this. Well, I don't know. It it was definitely kind of strange, right? I mean, Obama's there. He's got his head down. uh, His eyes are closed sometimes. And don't forget, at one point, he actually says, well, Governor Romney and I both agree on Social Security is fundamentally sound. I mean, clearly, the man was befuddled. So you think he was confused because... Romney doped him using something called the secret horse handshake. Yeah, that's what the guy told me. He pointed at the screen with his chicken bone, and he said, what's really going on here is that both Romney and Obama are riding the white horse. This episode of Too Much Information is called Making It Real. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen and Sylvie Kovnat. And it featured Aaron Bobro-Strain, Zoe Sheehan-Saldana, TMI correspondents Josh Glenn and Chris, and Jonah Freeman and Justin Lowe. Their exhibit, Stray Light Gray, closes October 27th in Chelsea, so catch it if you can. Special thanks also to Jesse Bennett, Christina Caputo, Colin Hinchy, and Dan Sinker. There's more information on the TMI playlist page, and that's where you can find the TMI podcast as well. All that and more at WFMU.org. WFMU is doing a silent fundraiser. It's the 31 Days of October campaign. There's a donate widget at the top of the TMI page. Please donate and support quality radio programming. <laughs>